I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. It's another stat panel this week. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney, Senior Football Writer Melissa Reddy, Northern football correspondent Mark Richley and sports feature writer Batushan Ahantaraja. It's been another very strange week in which nothing has happened and yet so much has happened. The Premier League is still scrambling to work out a solution to finish the season by the end of the summer. And on Tuesday, we published a story of Miguel's that revealed the Premier League is actively considering a World Cup-style finish to the season, a TV mega event with special isolated camps in London and the Midlands. Uh, From that article, Miguel writes, in order to complete the plan, clubs and their staffs will be confined to separate hotels away from their families, just like in an international tournament, albeit with full testing and quarantine conditions. The aim is to reduce the risk of contracting COVID-19, as even one case could derail the whole plan. Uh, Miguel, do you want to to run us through that piece to to kick things off? And how did the Premier League strike upon that quite uh, crazy idea? Well, it was something that was actually mentioned very early in discussions when they first postponed the league on the 13th of March. And obviously then there was a lot of other issues to, to sort out. So it was parked a little bit. But in the last week, or really last weekend, because they had more video conferences over Thursday and Friday, it was a, an idea that kept coming back up. Um, especially given, I suppose, I mean, it, a lot of it does sound difficult to work out. But when you consider the amount of logistical challenges to this problem of playing football as soon as possible, or or whenever it may seem to be to be so, at least at least it's a plan that tackles some aspects of it, uh, or at least offers workable solutions. So um, so from that sense, they they basically see it as the most viable. Uh, uh, to be fair, I know when people read it now, people basically think that's ridiculous. Um, but what the plan was essentially for it to be. June, July, uh, when they hope the curve has flattened and there is actually testing. I think widespread testing is essential to this and the only way it's anyway justifiable. Before we get into some of the kind of quite obvious uh, practical problems this would uh, throw up, Vish, just as a spectacle, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? I mean, I I suppose it's obvious, Miguel writes in the piece that the government is kind of encouraging this plan and I suppose it's obvious why, because... It gives people something to look forward to and maybe gives people a reason to, to stay indoors watching endless amounts of Premier League football. Yeah, that's the thing. As soon as, it, um, as soon as the piece came out, you saw the reaction to it was people just talking about how, how unrealistic it is and how, just as a reflex more than anything else. And I reckon it's taken, what, a few days and people are like, you know what, I'd take that. Give me football in any form, in any way you want to give it to me, I will take it right now. Um, yeah, it'll be incredible to see how they do it. I do wonder, though, about, you know, we've seen, in, I know we're going to touch on it later in this episode, but we've seen the Premier League are, are really struggling in this PR battle into how they, uh, I suppose, the clubs in particular are reacting to this COVID-19 pandemic. And you also wonder about the optics that would involve, well, that would emanate from 
just how you'd be able to pull something like this off. You would need extensive kind of medical cover. You would need, as I said, you, you know, if universal testing isn't, um, you know, isn't in play at that point, then certainly the Premier League are going to use the money they have to try and make it so at least in this bubble that people are tested, you know, consistently and, you know, everyone involved, they have some kind of gauge on where they've been, or, you know, what they've suffered from, what their symptoms are and whether they can treat them and stuff like that. And I do wonder if that might make this seem even more out of touch. I know it's not kind of a, a big issue because we're talking about specifically about football here, but I do wonder if, it's, if that's something they should consider. It's just a how... I suppose how palatable something like this is. I, I, I think it's a very good idea, and I think it's something they can pull off. Melissa wrote about it before with regards to how, for example, on cricket tours, they're very good at isolating people within the hotels and making sure there is... I suppose ultimately it's a security-safe environment, but that could be extended to being medically safe as well, as we saw in um, England's recent tour of South Africa, where there was a spate of illness that went through the team. Um, but I also think that it's, it is something that I think they need to be quite wary of in terms of I suppose the resources they're pulling out of you know different sectors because you know as I said at the start it's gonna it's gonna need a hell of a lot of effort and might actually find takes a little bit too much from other aspects of society if that makes sense yeah definitely. one of the one of the issues we're going to have is that um, every scenario seems so implausible and so silly because it's something new that we're going to deal with we've not experienced this before so even people pushing back at um, the basic elements of behind doors games it's because we're not used to it here so every single sort of suggestion or anything any proposal is going to have that backlash because it's new it's it's different uh we need to wrap our heads around it so even every time i've heard a contact say oh this has been discussed my initial reaction is always what on earth it makes no sense but it makes no sense because we're not used to it what what are some of the the potential pitfalls in your opinion mel because obviously you've got the like the practical concerns, the fact that a lot of people are going to be congregating. Also, the fact that hotel staff, for example, they're going to essentially have to be quarantined within this bubble. Um, you know, the fact that a private hospital, uh, private hospital would need to be ring-fenced in case players get injured, all these sort of concerns. But then there's also this, this wider moral issue at hand. You know, is this kind of palatable to have this football coronavirus-free zone when the rest of the country might still be struggling? Yeah, all of those things you mentioned, obviously, um, are logistical nightmares and, and moral questions that we need to be asking. Um, when I first heard of the plan and um, wrote about it at, as it being one of the things that, you know, has been mooted, it was actually being pushed by club doctors and conditioning experts and stuff. The people who are tasked generally with keeping players, you know, safe, sanitized, injury free. Uh, and they were thinking that in terms of obviously keeping the virus under wraps um, among squads and also training, being allowed to train together is going to be so crucial. You talk about, you know, uh, players being injured during this period. They will be injured if they're not allowed to train because their bodies aren't going to be able to handle playing football without any sort of training conditioning and practice matches. Um, 
And the other thing is usually when these teams go away and I don't know if it's the same with cricket camps and stuff, but with football, when, you know, on preseason tours and stuff, it's actually the football related staff that go with. So um, clubs will have their own chefs providing the food, their own nutritionists on hand to supply that stuff and often their own security, their own um, cleaning staff sometimes. Um, so I think when you say, when, when we think of a hotel, I think we're thinking in normal circumstances, you know, the, the in hotel's entire staff to cook, to clean. Uh, but I don't think that would be an issue in this case because it would be the clubs taking their own staff to do that. And it's only the team in that hotel, no one else, no other public. So there's no need for that mass security or, you know, mass cleaning staff and, and all that stuff. Like I said, everything that I hear seems so silly and so implausible, but ultimately the people put in charge of finding solutions have to come to one because I think as Migs and, and so many other people have stressed, this is not about the title. This is not even in cases about relegation or European places. Clubs could go bust. People could lose jobs. Football as we know it could not exist anywhere close to the way we know it if this money doesn't come in so because they've resolved to finish the season they have to find a solution uh critch i suppose the premier league's kind of mad scramble for solutions in this case demonstrates just how desperate they are to to finish the season why why is that what are some of the financial and legal implications that that you've been looking into um if if the premier league season is declared null and void yeah, um, well, it's been it's been so long since I've been on this podcast regularly. I can't remember if we're allowed to swear or not. But I was talking to someone last week um, who said that if it, if we go beyond the end of June, then everything's effed basically. Um, and I wrote about that a, a couple of weeks ago as well, and we discussed it on last week's pod. There's obviously all those all those legal implications still imply uh, apply. There's still that framework that will be broken. There's still that cliff edge that we're working our way towards. So I'm getting the sense that ultimately there will be some kind of conclusion found with that. Um, there is a kind of understanding amongst all parties, interested stakeholders, that these are extraordinary circumstances that, uh, that a solution needs to be found. But we're still hurtling towards that cliff edge without any real sense of uh, a solution. You talk about the financial problems as well. I think uh, the next big issue that's coming up over the hill is the TV money, uh, which we haven't, we've seen wages crop the head this week and a lot of attention paid to that. But once broadcasting companies come to deadlines where they need to start paying new installments for, you know, the, the next batch of games that would have been played, we might start to see Sky, BT, companies like that, um, broadcasting rights holders, withdraw that funding. And once that starts to happen, then suddenly there's a, a, a bit of a fire underneath the clubs again and we get that sense of urgency that, that we need to find a solution. I think we saw... In France yesterday, the for the first first one in Europe, I think it was where the a TV company actually said we're not going to pay for those games, and the situation there is, you know, is is kind of there's an increased sense of emergency and panic, if you like, an urgency to get a solution. So um, that's that's the next big thing coming over over the next few weeks, and, and still something that needs to be resolved. If if that does happen and the season is cancelled. Migs, I mean, well, all of you guys have been writing so much about, you know, what the Premier League are planning to do to cram all these games in at the end of the season. But are there also contingency plans being 
drawn up for the season being cancelled because it, it might still happen by default, right? I mean, if the yeah. pandemic gets even worse, then they might not have a choice. From what I, I was on to people in UEFA two days ago and they were saying that, I was actually a bit surprised by this, but there are currently no plans or potential ideas to truncate the 2021 season. Now, to be fair, they, that was said with the, with the proviso that they are basically updating all this every month. So, as I said, we're, we're, they're operating on the information they have at that time. So, at the moment, the optimistic plan is to keep going and hope that 2021 can run as normal if a month later. Uh, but, I mean, I think we all know that in two months' time, they will probably have to come up with some sort of idea to potentially alter what 2021 looks like, which uh, um, I think Rory Smith is going to do a piece on this, actually, to be fair. So I don't want to, I don't want to spoil his plan, but he, he was suggesting maybe a Scottish-style um, idea where basically the, the league splits between top half and bottom half. So it means you have 29 games or 38 games, stuff, stuff like that. Or I think what's also very likely is uh, a pure knockout European Cup or Champions League, which would be obviously much better, I think. Um, than kind of the, the group stage. But, but yeah, so, so at the moment, there are no... Again, this isn't within the game, though. There are no current plans for any short in 2021 because I suppose 2019-20 is already posing such problems. Uh, but I, I think they should be thinking about 2020. I, I think they should give themselves as much time as possible by just putting in a short in 2021 now. We know that um, UEFA met via video conference this week to postpone the Champions League final. Um, and we know that, like the Premier League, UEFA are desperate to finish those tournaments for all manner of reasons. If the Premier League um, plough ahead with this kind of shortened tournament-style finish, and also, makes you wrote that the Bundesliga are kind of looking into that as well, does that mean that the European Champions Leagues will also have to be compressed in this way? I mean, uh, UEFA are kind of backed into a corner, right? If the leagues decide one thing, they can't really go in any other direction. Yeah, basically, funny enough, I just got a message now saying, apparently the Belgian league has been stopped, Bruges to be champions. Uh, now, I suppose there's not the same pressure on Belgium because it's, it's not quite the extent of the mega broadcasting league that the top leagues are. So that they, they, I mean, they're able to get out of it yeah, quite easily. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, they have to be flexible now but it also means that, I mean, because as soon as they decide on a hard and fast decision, uh, they're kind of stuck down that path. So, for instance, like on Friday, so tomorrow, there are plans to try and secure some harder dates for when they, they can go back. And I think that they're under pressure from clubs a little bit because um, managers basically want to prepare their players a bit. But, I mean, really, that's just setting themselves up for a fall because you know, they're not in charge of the situation. The virus is. Yeah. Yeah, fi final question um, before the break, hypothetically speaking, really. Um, Melissa, what would happen if some major European leagues finished the season um, and then, for whatever reason, another major European league either decided to scrap it or was forced into scrapping it? Um, because, again, like the one thing that we're not really considering is that some countries have been hit by coronavirus far more than others. I think that's an, a massive issue and is posing a big headache. And that's ultimately what neither UEFA or FIFA wants because it creates a whirlwind of how you sort of settle the, the European places and stuff if 
there are legal battles in some cases and in some countries where there aren't in others because people will say, well, that happened in Belgium, so why can't we just not play? Why can't we just leave the season as is and solve it the same way they did? Or I think there is such a desire for uniformity in whatever way that's possible because it's sort of what is already such a conundrum. It lessens that a little bit. But I think the issue football has at the moment is it's so used to controlling everything. Football's this, you know, behemoth, this mega money spinner and this massive attraction. And we tend to think it makes the world go around and we're all missing it massively. And yet it's been reduced to a nothingness um, by something that's absolutely out of its control. And I think that's the one of the biggest obstacles in trying to get anything sorted is you, how, how do you sort things when the, the cause of what you're suffering is out of your control? Okay, time for a uh, very quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we get back, we're going to be talking about whether some of, the, some of the richest clubs in the world should be doing more to help their staffs and societies uh, during the pandemic. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. Uh, so this week, on the day that Tottenham chairman Daniel Levy's £3 million bonus was revealed, it was announced that the club have told non-playing staff they face 20% salary reductions, all being furloughed under the government's coronavirus job retention scheme. They are the second Premier League club um, to place a proportion of their staff on furlough after Newcastle United did likewise on Monday. Uh, let's start with you, Vish. As a solid, upstanding member of society, what is your initial reaction to, to news like that? Um, well, I think it says it all that on the itinerary that you sent through, this um, particular segment was titled Bastard Clubs. Um, <laughs> and I think that's a sentiment that's echoed for a lot a lot of people in this country. Um, you know, there was that tweet doing the rounds of a, a David Conn nugget that he pulled out, I think, earlier this season about the amount of money that Premier League clubs made in 2017-18, which is £4 billion. And then, so to see Spurs and Newcastle kind of dip their hand into the taxpayers' pots to um, kind of, well, I suppose, you know, not even keep themselves, like, to just simply not have to pay their, you know, the kind of match day staff and the you know the regular staff outside the playing group, um, their fair wages, um, yeah, nothing short of a disgrace. I think, you know, in times like these, you really do see um, individuals and institutions for what they are. And I think it's quite telling that 
some of the focus has been on players taking a pay cut and the narrative that, that has been trying, that people have tried to spun, sorry, is that, you know, players won't part with their, with their cash, specifically players at the top level who's not only earned so much more money, but whose money would go a lot further in society. Whereas actually, if you look into it, individual players have been doing quite a lot. And, you know, Spurs is Toby Aldevira donating those tablets to um, nursing homes and hospitals. You know, there, there are loads of examples out there of players trying to do their bit. The issue with pay cuts in particular is that it kind of has to be uniform. When you're part of any kind of player organisation, whether it's a PFA, whether it's the Professional Cricketers Association or the Rugby Players Association, you can't just go off on your own and, and do something like that because there generally has to be a precedent set across all professional player members of any sport with a view to maybe you having something of a sliding scale so people who could afford to part with more part with more people who can't part with less. Um, but going back to seeing what people have really made of, I think what we've seen now is, you know, the greed of Premier League clubs knows no bounds. And while obviously some, some Premier League clubs who are evidently more tied to their communities, such as teams like Bournemouth and Brighton, are doing their bit certainly behind the scenes, I think, you know, for someone like Daniel Levy and for someone like Mike Ashley to come out and do those sort of things, pretty reprehensible, but ultimately not very surprising. Yeah. I mean, Critch, Big question, but is it ever fair or is it ever right for a club in the, the financial position of Spurs, you know, one of the richest clubs in the world, to, um, to furlough their, their lowest paid workers? I mean, we, we never like to quote Tories on this show, but Julian Knight, the chair of the, the uh, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, has said that English football is operating in a moral vacuum. Yeah, I mean, is it, is it fair for them to furlough workers? I, I don't think so. I think anybody with, you know... A, a, most of us would look at the situation and would see the the kind of profits that a Premier League club makes, or at least the kind of revenues that they turn over. They're not always built to make profits; they're built to be successful on the football pitch. But we would look at that money and we would say that the first concern should be to be protect the workers who are, you know, who perhaps don't earn as much money as some of the directors, the owners, uh, and obviously some of the players as well. I agree with Vish. I think the the focus in this situation has kind of skewed a little bit. Um, over the past few days, there is a lot of attention now. I think one of the motivations of what uh, Daniel Levy said the other day was to try and shift that conversation and shift that tone and the rhetoric and, and put a bit of focus on players and the PFA and try and move the conversation in that direction. And I think it has been successful because you have people like Julian Knight, you have people like Sadiq Khan, uh, David Lamy, politicians who potentially, that you know, Taking aim at footballers and wages that they earn, it's, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very easy thing to relate to and to understand because you know we, you know, all the memes about soldiers should be paid footballers' wages and stuff. We see they are the most visible millionaires in the country, if you like, and we actually see the product of what their work and what they earn out on a football pitch televised to millions of people every weekend. And I think what we can easily forget is that the the PFA and other organisations that are working in this situation at the moment, what they need to look out for as well are those players in League One and League Two who might earn, you know, wages that are about 70000 to like 100000 a year rather than a week. And even though that's a lot of money to most people and certainly more than most of us get paid, I would say, that, that they still need to be protected. And, you know, it's, it's a very... Life as a footballer in those divisions, you can, you can be playing in League One one year, you could totally find yourself in League Two, not necessarily through relegation, maybe you moved on, there's great squad churn at those levels. You can quickly find yourselves in the non-league. And I did a piece last week talking to uh, people at 
FC United and they were saying how that's one of the bigger non-league clubs even though they aren't in one of the bigger non-league leagues divisions at the moment I was talking to them and they were saying that they only have three contracted players and a lot of their players are perhaps ex-professionals who are now semi-pro part-time and their jobs on the side are things like part-time fitness instructors and youth workers and driving instructors and things like that and they've been affected by this just as much as anyone else in society if not more because they're often self-employed so I think that I mean I've, I've kind of strayed from the question but I think that ultimately we need to refocus this question of wage deferrals and, and and things perhaps slightly away from or at least understand why it's not just the players who need to be doing their bit it's the clubs and it, by clubs I mean owners and billionaires and directors as well. That's a perfect answer and that leads um, perfectly on to Melissa you wrote today about how the ongoing situation has kind of shone a light on football's lack of leadership I think the best quote that jumped out to me was uh, Professor Simon Chadwick you spoke to he yeah. said that football will always be a target and what it needs instead of finger pointing is transparent dialogue on how we do things now, but more importantly, what happens going forward. So um, what, what did you kind of find while researching and, and writing that piece and speaking to people that I suppose we wouldn't usually talk to in the course of our normal jobs? Um, I think one of the, the first things that were mentioned that I didn't actually think of was that football clubs are actually small businesses by the government's definition of what a small business is uh, because we see them as these you know massive conglomerates and we think about you know the billions that are spent on transfers and stuff but in reality they are a small business um loads of people were not surprised at premier league clubs turning to the government scheme um obviously I think that should be the last resort. That should be for, for companies that desperately need it. And that should be where you go when you're thinking to yourself, hang on, there is absolutely no way we can keep hold of our staff here. Let's turn to the retention scheme uh, to actually save their jobs. Obviously, Premier League clubs are not in that position or anywhere close to that position yet. Uh, the other thing that was interesting is no one was surprised or no one has been surprised by player salaries becoming the focal point because that's a um, quite an easy target. And that sort of trains people's minds not to think of the major issues. So football has, uh, you know, governor, governance concerns, um, social responsibility concerns like proper social responsibility what are they doing for grassroots what's their actual purpose uh how are salaries of top executives and how is gordon taylor's salary how do all those things come to fruition you know like a proper inquiry into football but if you're just focusing on oh these young multi-millionaire players what are they doing and actually critch made an excellent point earlier if you look at players and and uh, Vish also said so players individually actually do quite a lot uh, most of the ones I engage with are very active in the communities they come from and the ones they're working in currently they're all aligned to charities uh, they do a lot of work away from the press and actually if you break it down you think some of these guys are, are kids still uh, you know you think of Trent and his work with the food banks he's you know 20 21 um, and they're acting with greater insight and, and a responsibility than most politicians and stuff do. So it's been 
quite interesting to see, you know, government officials all have a go at, at players because I think it's populist. It does stir the public, but it also just deters away from all the important things that I said we should be talking about. Um, one of the things that Professor Chadwick said, which resonated was everybody keeps talking about this is football's moment to reset. And it's true because, you know, we've all thought it or we've read it. And he said, reset to what? Where are we going back to? Or what are we, you know, or, and who's doing the resetting? And I think it's important during this period for everyone or the, the major stakeholders in football to think about what they actually want the game to look like after all this and how they can resolve the major issues that they're finding has bubbled to the surface because of the pandemic. What, what, what do you make of that, Migs? I mean, do you think that some of the finger pointing has been opportunistic, like Mel says? Because also the fact that always leaps out to me is that a lot of it is naturally coming from MPs who we, you know, we shouldn't also forget are paid incredibly yeah. well and well above the national average. Well, I, I think it is, it is fair to point out why is this always asked of footballers rather than other high-profile, high-earning uh, entertainment industries or sporting industries? But the reason it's come into view this week, obviously, is because of Levy's decision. And like you can't deny it, there is an absolute obscenity to the fact that Spurs' regular staff have to take pay cuts or go into furlough while, they're, while the players still some of them are earning hundreds of thousands a week. And I was speaking to one Spurs employee this week who did, who did literally say, I mean, fair play to Toby for getting iPads for the community or whatever, but ultimately he's still taking a home a hefty wage while the rest of us suffer. And that's completely fair. But I think there is merit as well in the fact, first of all, a lot of players will want to do something. Uh, although the one thing I would say, I, I sometimes think the most basic act of charity of players is often, or more so clubs made than players, to be fair, but it's often completely overstated and kind of this whole absolute class mindset. Like, I mean, again, to come back to it, the 100,000 donated from City and United to the food banks, it obviously makes a difference for those food banks and they have appreciated it. But like, I mean, in, in context of, of what those clubs are worth, it's, it's very low. Um, but, but then beyond that, I, I mean, talking to a, a lot of agents and that, I think they would say players are willing to take a cut and they, re they realise all of this. It's not just about the PR, uh, but also uh, the morality of this. But I suppose there's two issues. First of all, a lot of them are maybe rightly irritated that pressure is put on to take cuts when their billionaire owners won't. I mean, ultimately, in the Spurs case, they're owned by a billionaire tax exile who is now expecting, or whose club is now expecting to use taxpayers' money to pay his staff, which is remarkable. And secondly, uh, uh, the players have to, they do want to coordinate something because, he, and, and that's not just about some sort of stance that insulates them all, but it's also like, the, I mean, the, the bare maths, uh, like ultimately say a blanket wage cut isn't the same for a recent academy graduate as it is for a recently purchased star. So like they have to work out things like that. And I got, that was one, and even when, when Messi led that charge at Barcelona for a 70% cut, he did, he did even say that one of the reasons for the delay was working out how this would actually work. Because it's not just as simple as just, right, we're all going to take a pay cut. Why are all of the Premier League clubs um, seemingly waiting on the PFA? Because wouldn't it be easier for 20 clubs in 20 very different financial situations to figure out a way to fairly pay people and fairly pay non-playing staff 
rather than waiting for one body kind of telling everybody what to do, which might not fit in each individual case. But I suppose to break it away from football terms, it is ultimately a union issue. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, there's an excellent story by Sam Cunningham yesterday, which said that the, the PFA basically emailed all their members and told them, don't agree to anything until we've organised a collective approach, which, which I think is completely fair. Because, yeah, again, it's, it's not a football issue in that sense. It's ultimately a union and labour rights issue. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of clubs and a lot of players to ask, you know, what the feeling is around this. And there's been a willingness to do stuff and they've all been advised not to take any action, to wait for a collective approach because uh, there's a lot of due diligence that needs to happen as well in terms of individual clubs and what their books are saying and stuff, let alone the players' wages themselves. Like Miguel says, the, the difference between you know players at the same club let alone players between clubs um so you know for all the the heat they're taking these players none of them have come out and said hey we actually don't want to defer our wages or don't want to cut our salaries they're being told to wait okay thank you guys um few <laughs> another heavy podcast um we have Parked here in Villain for a while, so I thought it'd be quite nice to end with uh, everybody's kind of suggestions for sport films or sport documentaries that they've been whiling away the hours with. Miguel, what have you been watching? <laughs> I, I, I've actually now watched all of the English game, which I thought was okay. Um, my, although my, my expectations, I mean, I did have to initially watch it for something to do with work. Well, no, uh, because second captains wanted me to watch it. Um, uh, and then I ended up watching the whole thing out of boredom. I have to say my expectations were very low. Uh, they were around, they were around uh, where United Passions, that piece of film was. But, you know, it was all right. Um, you know, what are we talking in, 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 terms of, in terms of stars out of ten? What are we saying? Six. Six. Uh, yeah, may, 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 six, maybe 6.5 your board. You know, <laughs> and, maybe, and, and I think one of the points of it is maybe the true English game is actually capitalism. You know. <laughs> Deep points there. It also had, um, you know, if you watch, have you watched Game of Thrones? Yeah. So it had uh, Ramsay Bolton's psychopathic girlfriend, which, it, but in this she's a she's a Menatista figure, where she rebukes her husband, uh, one of the first chairman of the FA, Lord Kinnaird, for being an, ag- an aggressive player. So, Mish, <laughs> what are you saying? Well, I've just been obsessed with Tiger King for the last three days, so I kind of yes, that's, that's been my my sport so far. He did, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, it was yeah, it was just mad. I'm, I've got I'm moving on to um, Sunderland till I die today. I've got I've, I've heard about this David Brent figure, and I'm a sucker for misery as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think it I think it qualifies as sport to to sit there and, and count all the ridiculous things that happened in Tiger King because there's so much madness in it that you actually tend to ignore really crazy stuff like the guy smoking while he's standing with like all these gallons of gas. Like <laughs> He's not even holding the cigarette. He's just stood there with all these gallons of gas. But in the greater scheme of things, when a woman has potentially fed her husband to the tigers and... Um, all the other stuff going on there that just pales in insignificance. I saw people suggesting that every time Joe Exotic mentions Carol Baskin, you should take the shot. Can you imagine how pissed you'd be during yeah. that show? 
I would say I would say the um, the way that you could equate it to sport is that because everyone in it is so untrustworthy that it basically is just a succession of football press conferences where you're sat there thinking, do you actually mean that? Is this a lie? That's a most, great point. Actually, it, yeah. you just you could leave and think, well, that was all just trash. There's there's nothing to believe in any of that, but of course it's all true and it's um, yeah, it's absurd. Rich, what's your offering? So I watched the entirety of. Love is blind last week. Um, <laughs> no. This might qualify as competitive sport. I, I really regret not just reading the synopsis on Wikipedia. And obviously, I didn't read it, watch it alone. So um, I didn't have much choice in the matter, let's put it that way. But, you know, yeah, yeah. Great show. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Uh, well, thanks very much, guys. Um, some. Uh, a plug before we finish the show, uh, Melissa, Vish and myself are all going to be guests on today's independent coronavirus podcast, which is presented by Deputy Editor David Marley. So be sure to check that out. Uh, we're going to talk about the sporting world beyond football. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, um, make sure you listen to that too. If you're a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.